Would you please turn with me to your study outlines? And as you turn, let me welcome those of you that are joining us online and also our friends in Arco, Idaho, and also the hangar in Montana. We are so glad that you're joining us for our study of God's Word. Uh, we're coming down the home stretch now of our series, Rooted in Purpose from Failure to Mission Accomplished. And I'm actually going to jump ahead to chapter 28 because it fits with our momentum campaign and celebration today. And then we will go back and pick up chapter 27, which is one of my favorite chapters in the Bible. It's how to get through a storm and go through a storm in your life of, of trouble. And so we will go back and pick that up. But I want to skip ahead to chapter 28. And so we've got to define success. What is success, particularly as we move into a school year? You know, I always say that the real New Year's Day is right about this time, not in January, but now. This is when families are figuring out their priorities. This is when we're figuring out what we're going to devote our time to, what's going to be important. I used to say, and this is so out of date, I used to say that the Tuesday after Labor Day was the real January 1st, but that is so 10 years ago, uh, because how many of you, the kids in your school district, are already back in school? I mean, everybody. One teacher talked to me after the first service, said they'd been back at school for two weeks. Weeks. I'm telling you, now when I was a boy, we didn't go back to school until after Labor Day. I'll tell you, in the old days, yeah, I hear some amens on that. I tell you, in a few years, they're probably going to go back to school in May or something like that. You know, summer break will start in April and they'll go back in, in May. But this is the time. August is the new September. This is the time you're kind of figuring out priorities. So you got to ask yourself the question how do I define success? Now, you'll see the map there as we finish up Paul's journey to Rome, and now we pick it up with chapter 28, verse 1. Once safely on shore, that is after the shipwreck that we're going to go back and pick up in chapter 27, we found out that the island was called Malta. The islanders showed us unusual kindness. They built a fire and welcomed us all because it was raining and cold. Paul gathered a pile of brushwood. Now, I, I like this about Paul. Because you know the lowest job uh, on the totem pole, the hierarchy of skilled and unskilled labor, when you're camping, is getting firewood, okay? I know this because it was always the job that was given to me. Whenever on a Boy Scout camping trip or summer camp, you know, it's always like, Bill, you know, you're really good at setting up tank, uh, tents, you do that. And Larry, you're really good at starting fires, you do that. And, and Jim, uh, you're really good at cooking, you do that. Glenn? go gather firewood. That was always the assignment that I had. And here Paul, uh, as great a man as he was, was willing to pitch in to help even though it was the lowest of the jobs. I mean, you know, if I were Paul, I would have said, do you know who I am? I wrote a big chunk of the Bible. I'm considered the greatest intellect of all time, one of the greatest leaders of all time. I think somebody else should gather the brushwood. But we know that about Paul. He actually supported himself as a tent repairer and a, and a tent maker. And so when he just needed to pitch in, he wasn't too high and mighty. He was humble enough to gather a pile of brushwood. And as he put it on the fire, as a person petrified of snakes, this is the scariest verse in the Bible, a viper driven out by the heat fastened itself on his hand. Now, those of you that aren't afraid of snakes, I just want to tell you, Satan took the form of a snake, so I think the more godly you are, the more afraid of snakes you are. And if you're not afraid of snakes, I don't know what I'm saying about that. I'm just saying uh, that he took the form of a snake. I'm, I'm just joking about that. I know many of you love snakes, but I am not one of those. And so it fastens itself on his hand. Now, you're going to see the most fickle crowd ever. This is the fickleness of human opinion. When the islanders saw the snake hanging from his hand, they said to each other, this man must be a murderer. For though he escaped from the sea, the goddess, the Greco-Roman goddess, justice, has not allowed him to live. 
But Paul shook the snake off into the fire and suffered no ill effects. The people expected him to swell up or suddenly fall dead. But after waiting a long time and seeing nothing unusual happen to him, they changed their minds and said he was a god. Don't you love that? I mean, yeah. He goes from murder to God in 15 minutes. That is just amazing. Reminds me of the, one of my favorite Aesop fables where uh, two men are walking into town, a father and a son with their donkey. And they're walking into town and a group of people come by and say, you, you morons, one of you ought to be riding on that donkey. And so the father puts his son up on the donkey and they walk along for a while. Somebody comes by and says, isn't that terrible, that perfectly healthy young man on the donkey making his poor old father walk. So they switch. They put the father on the donkey and, and the young man walked. They go a little bit longer and they said, isn't that terrible, that perfectly able father is riding the donkey making his poor young son walk. So they both got on the donkey and then they came across an animal rights group and they, and they <laughs> said... That, that's terrible. Look at those two perfectly healthy men with that poor burden on, on that donkey. So according to Aesop's fable, they lashed the front hooves and the back hooves of the donkey together, put a pole through it, and marched into town carrying the donkey on their shoulders. And the point of that fable is how foolish we look when we let other people define success for us. Instead of going before God with his word and saying, God, how, how do you define success? That's how I'm going to live during the coming year. The three marks of success. Number one, going through life with people that love and encourage you. Part of our mission statement. Our mission statement is finding purpose in Christ, in community, surrounded by people that love and encourage us. That will enable us to do it for the journey. In Christ, in community, with people love and encourage you for the journey. Verse 11, after three months, we put out to sea in a ship that had wintered in the island. It was an Alexandrian ship with the figurehead of the twin gods, Castor and Pollux. Now, why is that important? It's, a, it's seemingly a silly little detail. It was Alexandria, an Egyptian ship, and yet archaeologists, historians from that time period, uh, tell us that Castor and Pollux were two of the popular gods of the Egyptians at that time. Now, why is that significant? Is that every little detail, historically and archaeologically, scientifically, prophetically of God's word, is right 100% of the time. This is God's inerrant word. It is without error. It is the only religious work that includes tons and tons of history and facts that can be verified or disqualified within it. Every other religious work just tells you the, the thoughts of a certain great thinker at some particular time. You can either uh, like his thoughts or her thoughts, or you can reject his thoughts or her thoughts. Only God's word. I've heard it said, for example, that there's more history in one chapter, I think it's chapter 19 of Genesis, than there is in the entire Koran. More history in one chapter of this than the entire Koran. Now, why is that significant? Because the Bible basically screams out, you can check me. And if we can check it in the areas that we can verify and find it to be accurate 100% of the time, then we can trust it in areas theologically when it tells us how to get to heaven. That Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody comes to the Father except through him. So even in a silly little detail, like what were the twin gods on the masthead of a ship from first century AD that had come out of Alexandria, we find this to be without error and right 100% of the time. 
We put it at Syracuse, we put in at Syracuse because we wanted to see an excellent college basketball game. And so we uh, went in there. I did that for my mother-in-law. She is a fanatical Syracuse fan. She's in Syracuse. She watches all three services in the morning. And so, Mom, that one's for you. She is crazy for the Syracuse Orangemen. We put in at Syracuse and stayed there three days. From there, we set sail and arrived at Regium. The next day, the south wind came up, and on the following day, we, watched, we reached Puteoli. There we found some brothers and sisters who invited us to spend a week with them, and so we came to Rome. The brothers and sisters there had heard that we were coming, and they traveled as far as the Forum of Apius, which was about 43 miles from Rome, and the three taverns. Others made it uh, 33 miles from Rome and joined the entourage to meet us, and they all accompanied Paul into Rome. At the sight of these people, Paul thanked God and was encouraged, which means before he was discouraged, and now he's encouraged. You see, in our day and age, if a famous person were to come here, we'd just sit and wait until they got here. But back then, you could tell how important a person was by how far away you went out to greet them and then walked them in as an entourage and accompanied them into the city. And so this shows the value they held, the esteem they held Paul in, that 43 miles, some of them, and others that got as far as 33 miles, joined the entourage, 43 miles away, they meet him, and they accompany him into Rome. And when Paul sees them, he thanks God, and he was encouraged because he had been, I believe, discouraged. We think of Paul as, oh, nothing ever got him down, absolutely untrue. He was knocked down and discouraged time and time again. You can see it in books like 2 Corinthians and 2 Timothy. He went through much self-doubt and, and many fears and many times of depression and discouragement. And, and I imagine as he got closer and closer to Rome, he would see the Roman legionnaires marching by in perfect formation and in all their awesome military power. He would see the organization of the transportation system of Rome that was unprecedented until that time in human history. He passed by uh, the, the birthplace of Virgil, the great poet and the great thinkers of Rome. And as he saw Rome in all of its glory, he thought to himself, he felt smaller and smaller and smaller and said, I am in way over my head because he was on his way to Rome. Have you done that? Have you been to Rome? I'm sure you have. Uh, some of you will let go of the little hand of your kindergartner. Uh, and as you let go of your mom or dad's hand when you were in kindergarten and you walked into that school, you said to yourself, I'm on my way to Rome. I am in way over my head. When you went from junior high to high school for the first time, I remember how petrified I was. Went to public high school from kindergarten through third grade. Then I went to a little tiny Christian school from fourth to eighth grade and then went back to public high school. And uh, my eighth grade class in this little Christian school had about 11 or 12 students in it. And then went to the public high school, which was much bigger, not by Southern California standards, but by Virginia standards. It was really a big high school. And I remember just walking onto that campus thinking, I am in so far over my head. I remember going to Wheaton College for the first time, stepping on campus, and everybody when you go to college seems so smart, and they all seem so sharp, and just thinking to myself, I am way too dumb to be here. I am in over my head. Felt the same thing when I went to seminary. Same thing when I started at my first church, and I'll tell you, when I felt the most intimidated is when I walked into this room for the first time. 
Kimberly and I came here from, uh, from Homer, New York, and Peter Torrey, he did that whole manipulative thing he just told you with the uh, visitor spiel, you know, where uh, they, they actually brought me in from the back because it's most impressive this room is when you come from the back and all the lights came on because he was trying to make an impression. But what he didn't know is that I almost got on the plane back to Homer, scared to death, and just said, I'm in way over my head. And, uh, and you've been to Rome, haven't you? I remember when I was in college, uh, ran in the Drake relays, the two biggest college track relays or the Penn relays in Philadelphia, the Drake relays in Des Moines, Iowa. And uh, they held you in this little waiting area underneath the stadium until it was time for your race. And then you come out and you go into this huge stadium. It's filled with people. And, and the MC for that day, the guest of honor was Bruce Jenner. And he was Bruce Jenner back then. And he had just, uh, he had just gotten uh, the gold medal and the decathlon. And there's Bruce Jenner. And there's this huge crowd. And I remember just walking out into the sunlight and going, you are so far in over your head. Uh, that's the way a groom feels when I stand with him here and, and in the middle of a wedding. All of a sudden, the doors open wide, and there she is, and he's thinking to himself, I am so far over my head. I remember when Abby, our first daughter, our child, was born, and she comes out, and as a dad, I'm like, I'm so far over my head. And then our son, John, we had always had girls, and then we adopted our two boys, and, and John had some pretty severe health difficulties. And I remember the first time, you know, Kimberly had always taken the girls to the bathroom, and now it's my turn to go in there, and I'm just standing there thinking, I am in so far over my head. And, and you felt that with your children, and every new stage of life, and every new job, and every new uh, destination, we all feel like we have been to Rome, and we are in over our head, but here's what makes it manageable. When you go through life with people that love and encourage you. And as soon as Paul saw these people, it says he thanked God and he was encouraged. All you need is one person to believe in you. Heartbroken, Nathaniel went home to tell his wife that he had been fired from his job. Sophia surprised him with an exclamation of joy. Now you can write your book. Yes, replied the man with sagging confidence. And what shall we live on while I'm writing it? To his amazement, she opened a drawer and pulled out a substantial amount of money. Where on earth did you get that? He exclaimed. I've always known that you were a man of genius, she told him. I knew that someday you would write a masterpiece. So every week, out of the money you gave me for housekeeping... I saved a little bit. Here's enough to last us for one whole year. From her confidence came one of the greatest novels of American literature, The Scarlet Letter by Nathaniel Hawthorne. And it just takes that one person to go through life with that loves you and that encourages you or that group of people, that's success. Number two, success is when the only thing in our lives that can be criticized is our faith in Christ. Now, until we get to heaven, there will always be something to criticize. Okay? But we need to keep that other stuff to a minimum so that the main thing to be criticized in us is that we are a follower of Jesus. We don't want it to be inconsistency in our Christian testimony. We don't want it to be uh, inconsistency in our integrity or areas of our life that, that people uh, can point to and say we're inconsistent in our walk with Christ as much as possible. We want to minimize that so the main thing to be criticized this side of heaven is that we are followers of Jesus. That was true for Paul. When we got to Rome, Paul was allowed to live by himself with a soldier to guard him. Three days later, he called together the local Jewish leaders. When they had assembled, Paul said to them, 
My brothers, although I have done nothing against our people or against the customs of our ancestors, I was arrested in Jerusalem and handed over to the Romans. They examined me and wanted to release me because I was not guilty of any crime deserving death. The Jews objected, so I was compelled to make an appeal to Caesar. I certainly did not intend to bring any charge against my own people. For this reason, I've asked to see you and talk with you. It is because of the hope of Israel that I am bound with this chain. They replied, we have not received any letters from Judea concerning you because there was nothing negative to say. And none of our people who have come from there has reported or said anything bad about you. The only thing offensive about him was Christ. Next page of your study outline, Peter writes, who's gonna harm you if you're eager to do good? But even if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed. My son Noah and and Rebecca went with Kimberly to the, um, uh, the, the Planned Parenthood protest and Noah goes, hey, Dad, he says, three different people gave me the finger uh, as they drove by. And I said, well, did you give it back to him? And I, he said, no. I said, I, that I can use you in my sermon. Okay, that, that's good. Um, uh, you are blessed if you suffer for what's right. Do not fear their threats. Do not be frightened. But in your heart, revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have, but do this with gentleness and respect. May we not be the jerks is what people respond to in our attitude, but instead help that to be Christ that they're offended by, not anything within our personality, not anything within our character. Keeping a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. For it is better if it is God's will to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. Usually doing the right thing will bring commendation and not criticism. But you should still anticipate criticism anyway. Boy, I read a book about the persecution of Christians. It's from a secular viewpoint, not a Christian viewpoint about the persecution of Christians around the world. It's the number one human rights violation today. It is like, it's it's crazy. It's like there's no real reason behind it. It's just this irrational hatred. And this secular writer said something that I just thought was amazing. There is no surer proof of Christ's divinity than that he is still so hated some 2,000 years after his death. There is no sure proof of Christ's divinity than that he is still so hated some 2,000 years after his death. I mean, think of other religious leaders. Nobody hates Gandhi. Nobody even thinks about Gandhi except on occasion on Gandhi Day or something like that, you know. Nobody thinks about Gandhi. And certainly nobody hates Gandhi. Nobody hates Confucius. Nobody hates Buddha. And where does this irrational hatred come from of a teacher who mainly taught to love your enemies. Where does this come from? It comes from the supernatural nature of Christ himself. He is a stumbling block because we either choose for him or against him. And so this irrational hatred of Christ and those that follow him. However, when we're criticized, evaluate your position with the possibility that your critics are at least to some degree more correct than you. You can learn from criticism. Ask yourself, whenever you get criticized, what is it here that God wants to teach me uh, through this? Okay, Um, Maybe I did the right thing, but I did it in the wrong way. Or maybe I did the right thing, 
in the right way, but I did it according to the wrong timetable. I, the timing uh, was off on that. When we get criticized, it's not you versus them. It's you versus you. It's who you are versus who God wants you to be. And God can use criticism to reduce the part of us that does need to be changed so that Christ within us emerges as the main source of offense. Be gentle and respectful in your response. Peter again writes, For it is commendable if someone bears up under the pain of unjust suffering because they are conscious of God. But how is it to your credit if you receive a beating for doing wrong and endure it? But if you suffer for doing good and you endure it, this is commendable before God. A criticism, if you're doing God's will, criticism is a compliment. If you're doing what God told you to do, then criticism is a compliment. And then number three, third sign of success, is having another year to share Christ. It says in verse 22, uh, the, these, um, the Jewish leaders that Paul had called together, and they said, we haven't heard anything bad about you, but we do want to hear what your views are. For we know that people everywhere are talking against this sect. We know you're a rabble-rouser, Paul, and we want to find out for ourselves why. They arranged to meet Paul on a certain day and came in even larger numbers to the place where he was staying. He witnessed to them from morning till evening, explaining about the kingdom of God and from the law of Moses and from the prophets. He tried to persuade them about Jesus. Some were convinced by what he said but others would not believe. Skipping down to verse 30. For two whole years, Paul stayed there in his own rented house and welcomed all who came to see him. Uh, The letter of Philippians tells us more about this time. He says, now I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what was happening to me has actually served to advance the gospel. It seems like, what's God up to? Here he is in, in jail, but it actually served to advance the gospel. As a result, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard And everyone else that I'm in chains for Christ. And because of my chains, most of the brothers and sisters have become confident in the Lord. And they dare all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. He was sharing Christ. Other people, by example, became bolder in sharing Christ. We believe that the letters of Ephesians, Colossians, Philemon, and Philippians were written during this particular time. And so even though it seemed bad for him to be in prison, God was working his good through it all. Caesar is going to hear about Jesus. In his courtroom, he's going to hear about Jesus. In his home, he's going to hear about Jesus. Say, Glenn, what do you, why do you say that? Philippians chapter 4. Greet all God's people in Christ Jesus. The brothers and sisters who are with me send greetings. All God's people here send you greetings, especially those who belong to Caesar's household. You want to take a guess as to what the Greek word is that is translated here as household. Oikos. When in doubt, the answer is either Jesus or oikos. Just, just so you know. One of those three words, Jesus, oikos, or purpose. Those are, those are the three answers. You ever play Trivial Pursuit and you just learn after a while that when in doubt, the answer is Babe Ruth, Albert Einstein, or Marilyn Monroe. That's what, if you really don't know, you just guess one of those and is right much of the time. So around here, when you have to guess, it's either Jesus, um, purpose, or oikos. So it, it, it's translated here as household, Caesar's, Caesar's oikos. Now, isn't this crazy? Depending, and Bible scholars do debate as to which imprisonment um, it was that Philippians was written from. But based on what your view is of that, somewhere between 20 and 30 years, only 20 and 30 years after the death and resurrection of Jesus, there are followers of Jesus 
in Caesar's household, in his oikos. Is that crazy? A peasant in Palestine, uh, a, a Jewish peasant in obscurity in Palestine gets executed by the Roman government. And within 20 to 30 years, there are followers of that peasant in the household of Caesar in Rome. Resurrection's the only thing that can explain that. Only the resurrection can explain that miracle. So there are followers of Jesus, either in his family, among his staff, or his military officers. So Caesar says, I can't get away from this Jesus guy. He's in my courtroom. He's in my home. So let's go on vacation. He's there too. Acts 16, from Troas, we put out to sea and sailed straight for Samothrace. And the next day we went on to Neapolis. From there we traveled to Philippi, a Roman colony, and the leading city of that district of Macedonia, and we stayed there several days. Philippi was a retirement community for retired military officers. Now, I know what that's about because I grew up in a little rural area called Prince George, Virginia, but we, I grew up 300 yards outside the back gate of Fort Lee, Virginia, which is one of the biggest army bases in the country. And so a lot of people liked Virginia, and so when they retired from the army, they would settle right there. So our next-door neighbor was a lieutenant colonel, retired lieutenant colonel in the army, and almost all of our neighbors were retired military all around us. And that's the way, that's the way Philippi was. It was a retirement community for retired military officers. And so there were followers of Christ there uh, a, a, as well. Um, let's jump down to Acts 28, verse 31. Here's the last verse in Acts. He proclaimed the kingdom of God and taught about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. Now, some people complain about that ending to Acts. You ever have the ending of a book and you complain about it or the end of a movie or a TV series and people debate whether they like the ending or not. And they said, this is just too too abrupt. There's no like nice ending to it. I think it's absolutely perfect. I think it's so cool that it's left open-ended. You know why? Because we continue to write chapters on the end of the book of Acts. We want it abrupt. Because we are writing chapters until Jesus comes back. Now what do we think happened? Uh, well, we can make a guess. Luke Acts was written to Theophilus. Theos meaning God, Phyllis, phileo meaning lover, lover of God. And so it could have been a generic title, just Dear All Lovers of God. So it's written for everybody. But most likely Bible scholars believe that it was a person named Theophilus. And some believe that he was the head of the defense team, the legal defense team, that Luke and Acts were written as part of the legal defense team to gather information for the trial before Caesar of of Paul. And so many Bible scholars believe that he was acquitted at his trial. He lived another four years. Well, what did he do during those four years before he was re-imprisoned? And then at this time, he was executed. This is when the book of 2 Timothy was written. And this is when he faces his execution at the hands of Nero. So what happened in those missing four years? We don't know, but we can guess by what he wanted to do. Romans 15, verse 28. So after I have completed this task and have made sure that they have received this contribution... I will go to, you tell me, where? Spain. So we believe that during this four-year period, after his first release from prison, he goes and preaches the gospel all the way to Spain, then he's re-imprisoned, and then that's when he's executed and being beheaded by Nero. Now, I love the abrupt ending to the book of Acts because it, begin, it ends the way it began. It begins with Peter... The book of Acts begins with Peter proclaiming Christ in Jerusalem, and it ends with Paul proclaiming Christ in Rome. 
It begins, Acts 2, verse 14. Then Peter stood up with the eleven after the day of Pentecost, raised his voice and addressed the crowd, fellow Jews and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. And it ends with Paul. He proclaimed the kingdom of God and taught about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. The beginning is the end, and the end is the beginning. It's abrupt, but it's a perfect ending because it continues with us. And that's what the Momentum Campaign is all about. That's what it's all about, is we, by the grace of God, will continue proclaiming Christ, adding chapters to the book of Acts, until he returns. And all God's family said, Amen. Hey, let's stand up to uh, pray a dedication over our area. Um, out here, the community terrace and the play yard. And, uh, um, and then you run out and grab chicken. I mean, as a matter of fact, they did find a missing part of the book of Acts. And the next verse said, and after they had, uh, he preached all these things, they went out and had fried chicken in the terrace. I, it's, I'm, I'm serious. It was just discovered. And that's a lie. That is absolutely not true. That is not true. But um, um, uh, you see pictures of the terrace up there, uh, right there. There's the terrace area and then the playground area. And then uh, we have, um, and then we have a drone view of it here. Uh, you say, where'd we get a drone from? Well, Eric Waggy has, has a drone. His wife, uh, Camille, was just singing up here. And so I just want you to know, we're watching you wherever you are. Yeah, just want you to know, any sin you commit, we have it on tape here. I'm just kidding. Not me, but Peter Torrey does. Peter Torrey does have that. But, um, but uh, prayer room is open. If you'd like prayer for anything, the prayer team and the prayer room is open over here. They would love to pray with you with any need that you have. But let's dedicate this and then head on out and grab lunch. Lord, I, we now as a church family dedicate uh, this um, this new project to you. We thank you that it's completed. I thank you for the faithfulness of your people that has made it possible. Lord, I pray for just hundreds, thousands, thousands of children that are going to play on that playground, and they will find church to be a fun place, but on the bridge of it being a fun place where they are cared for and loved, they will meet Jesus, and they will follow Jesus, and they will become adults that are passionate for Christ. And then, Lord, for the community terrace area, I pray for every conversation that happens there, that it'll encourage people, as we just talked about with Paul, that it'll be a place of love and encouragement where people can discover their purpose in you and, and they can do it in community with other believers and be encouraged to continue fulfilling that purpose for the remainder of the journey that you've given to them. May that be a people where people come to Christ, where they are encouraged, where they are strengthened, where Christian fellowship takes place. And Lord, uh, for the other parts of the campaign that continue with the reduction of debt, which we believe is honoring to you and makes us more effective, for the, for the making of our campus, enhancing it so that when people drive by, they will say, Jesus must really matter to them because look at how they take care of their place where they worship him. And uh, Lord, thank you for what has happened so far. We commit the remainder of this campaign to you and pray that you will use it for your purposes for your honor, for your glory. And we pray this in Jesus' name and all God's family said, amen. God bless you. Have a great day.